that's something that I think is really important for everyone is like to really know yourself and to trust your gut instinct. And if you feel like something is a better fit, whether it's on the investing side or the entrepreneurship side, um, like take the leap of faith. It's not going to be easy. And you might feel like you failed because you might have seemed to have given up on something early. But um, it really paid dividends for me by leaving that job early and took a 70% pay cut to join an early stage startup um, because I knew that was something I was much more passionate about. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Mental Health Awareness Month was in May, but as some of you may know too well, mental health problems last all year. However, many will still continue to devalue mental health conditions, especially compared to physical health conditions. Our guest, Lucia Huang, is hoping to change that. She is the founder and CEO of Osmine, a company providing digital platforms for mental health research and treatment. Today, Lucia talks us through her career journey and her life as a CEO. She also tells me why mental health is so important and what happens if we don't treat it that way. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Lucia. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks, Christine. I'm so excited to be here. So where are you based these days? Are you in San Francisco? I'm actually down on the peninsula, so about 30 minutes south. But we have an office in Potrero Hill. So go up to the city a couple times a week. Okay, because that's what I thought. Um, So really exciting. Congratulations on your recent uh, closing your round. Thank you. It's perfect timing. It sure is. Yeah, we're really excited. We closed it a few months ago and announced it uh, just about a month ago now in in early May. Um, And really excited to have this capital and get to work with DFJ Growth, who's our new lead investor. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm really excited for you. Um, Thank you. I I thought it would be great. Uh, You you have quite an interesting background. Um, We share on the investment banking route a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. But tell us about your journey and uh, why you start Osman. Osman or Osmine? Is that the right word? Osmine. Osmine, that's what yep. I thought. I, you know, yep. my, I grew up in Indonesia, so I read something completely oh. different. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, yeah, yeah. So we've been working on Osmine for about uh, two, two and a half years now. And it really is a culmination of a lot of my passions in my career and in my personal life. So I actually grew up in the Bay Area, not too far from San Francisco, and grew up in an Asian American household. Um, and worked really hard to go to college on the East Coast at Yale. Um, Like you said, I graduated college and actually entered finance. I'd studied chemistry in undergrad and was really excited and interested by medicine, but quite frankly, didn't have the guts to go to med school and didn't feel like uh, I was willing to work in a lab for many, many years in med school. But I knew that there was a lot to do in healthcare. My mom was in medical devices. And growing up, I was always much more excited about listening to what she did than what my dad did, which was work in um, hard hard tech. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, knowing that, had gone to Yale to study chemistry undergrad um, and then wound up in finance after and, and joined investment banking to focus on advising life sciences companies. So it was really neat. You know, going out of college, you're a fresh grad and you're getting to work with some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, advising them on their M&A strategy or how they can make a bigger impact um, and was a great training ground for me 
to figure out my skill sets and how I could impact healthcare at scale. Um, and it made me realize that I wanted to do even more and wanted to work more at the cutting edge of healthcare and in health tech. So I ended up joining private equity after two years in investment banking and focused on growth stage investing in healthcare IT companies. So I coincidentally um, invested in an EHR company at the time, an electronic health record company, which is now coming full circle uh, now that we're building one ourselves. And um, actually realized that PE was not at all for me. So mm -hmm. about half a year into my journey, I realized it was not a great fit. Um, I quit my job and I moved back out here to the Bay Area uh, with the intention of joining a really early stage startup um, because I felt that I could make a much bigger impact if I was on the building side of things. No, you know, nothing against investors. It's a really important part of our ecosystem. But for me personally, I wasn't as excited by um, being at like arm's length from actually operating. Um, and it felt like I could be much more, much closer to the patient if I was on the operating and building side. So I joined Verge Genomics, which is an early stage neuroscience biotech startup that's still based in San Francisco. And they're using AI to find better cures for ALS and Parkinson's. And it was just so exciting. Um, this was you know over five years ago. So just as AI and biotech were starting to combine, and we were seeing a lot of really exciting innovation, and more than that, it really highlighted how much the field of neuroscience is changing. Um, I think we all know that the brain is sort of the last bastion of medicine, um, so much that we still don't know. But there's been a lot of innovation recently where we're starting to get a better understanding. And in the same way that oncology is transforming and really did transform in the last decade, it's not at all a solved problem, but death rates actually fell in the last 20 years in oncology because we have precision medicine, right. we have... Uh, CAR, CAR T and gene therapy ways to more objectively um, treat and diagnose patients. The same trends are now happening in neuro, neuropsychiatry. And as I was at Verge, um, I started to realize that all of this innovation was taking place. So I decided to go to business school with the ideas of just taking some time to explore my passions and take a little bit of a break from um, what sometimes felt like the rat race of, uh, of building a career. And when I was there, I met my co-founder, Jimmy, um, who was at Stanford Medicine at the time. And we both bonded over so many different things. We had actually grown up in very similar households, um, Asian American households out here in the Bay Area. And I think reflecting on how we grew up, there's a mental health, health crisis everywhere. I would say especially so in the Bay Area. And Christine, you might be familiar with this given you live here too. Um, a lot of children and adolescents grow up in a very high pressure environment. And at least for me growing up, um, I saw a lot of that around me. Mm -hmm. um, during my time growing up, there were actually a string of suicides um, on the Caltrain tracks growing up. And I remember that was like a conversation I had with my parents every day. Like, why, why are people doing this? And at the time, I didn't understand. Um, and now, like having gone through that, that career and seeing that pressure myself, um, it became really obvious that we just have so many issues with our mental health care system and just so many access issues, but also so many fundamental issues with how we diagnose and how we treat patients in mental health care. So Jimmy and I really got excited about where neuropsychiatry is going and that there's finally hope for patients everywhere, not just the kids that we saw growing up, but people all around the world and wanted to build something to um, really help provide better software for patients and providers that are in the specialty um, and also collect really important information and data so that we can start to improve the standard of care and contribute to further further research. So 
that's where Ozmine was born about two and a half years ago. But we're building a platform for breakthrough mental health research and treatment so that the medical community can advance these life-saving mental health interventions. Why? I mean, I understand your reason why you want to solve, help uh, solve the mental health crisis and why this is the approach that you want, you are taking on in Ausmind to help address mental health. And maybe you can start, yeah. like, maybe you can mention about what is Ausmind. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So specifically, we're focused on building an electronic health record software for mental health care clinicians um, who are typically seeing patients with moderate, severe mental health conditions. And the software allows these providers to better manage their patients and run their practices while also contributing to research for better health, mental health interventions overall. So it's, um, there's a little bit of like a data analysis and, and data component of it on the back end where we're gathering all this real world data. We can learn a lot from it and we can then go and work with life sciences companies um, to analyze this data to better design their clinical trials, to find better patients for their clinical trials, to think about how they might go to market. Lots of different use cases for what we can learn in the real world. Um, and the reason why we decided to take this approach to your point, I mean, mental health has had so much funding in the last year, which is great. Like the more the merrier, we need all the help we can get. Um, for us, we felt like there is a whole segment of the patient population that was being neglected. And those are people that have not found solace in the current standard of care. Um, in the U.S., actually, over 20 million Americans are considered treatment refractory. That means that they failed multiple lines of treatment, whether that's psychotherapy or traditional antidepressants. And I think that really shows that the current standard of care is no good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, we really wanted to think about like, well, what are the things that we can do to actually change the status quo rather than perpetuate the status quo? And to us, changing the status quo means we need a fundamentally better way to diagnose and treat people like the current drugs and treatments are not good. So we've got to collect the data to be able to do that. And we have to enable the clinicians that are doing the hard work on the front lines. Help us understand. I'm just curious about your process about, you know, coming up with this idea, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I know you mentioned you have experience with uh, EHIR before mm-hmm. uh, when you're on the investment wall and just mm-hmm. to connect the dot. Help me understand how you connect that dot. Yeah. Yeah. So the thought process kind of came out in a bunch of different ways. Like it, there was a coalescing of a lot of different threads. Um, on the one hand, so I mentioned Jimmy and I were at Stanford and he was in the medical school. So we, out of curiosity, took uh, Stanford Medicine's first ever psychedelic medicine class, which <laughs> was pretty astounding. Like This is like a you know, world-class medical school, like doing a class in psychedelic medicine. And we realized like, this is not fringe science. Like this is actually where the field is headed that these therapies have like tremendous therapeutic potential and benefit. And it was just one of many things that is signaling the change in neuropsychiatry. So that was one big piece where we got really excited. We saw that like there are actually a lot of healthcare clinicians that are starting to adopt Mm -hmm. those types of treatments or are waiting for them to get approved so that they can adopt the treatments. And then we ended up talking to a lot of providers. So we went around the Bay Area, we were knocking on a bunch of psychiatrist doors um, actually, we started our company right before COVID. And then in the height of COVID, we drove down to LA to like knock on more doctors' doors um, and just learn from them and, and try to sell our, the early version of our product. But just speaking with the psychiatrists too, we realized that, oh my gosh, they're really struggling. And um, it felt really unfair. Like I felt angry that um, these clinicians are doing like literally some of the most difficult work in this country. And they were using pen and paper. Um, they still are. 
or they were using software from 2000 or 2005. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just felt really unfair that like me as, you know, the 20 whatever year old just doing my work, I get to use top notch software all the time, like all technologies geared towards me and not towards these people that Mm -hmm. are really doing meaningful work. So um, we saw that there was an opportunity to build better software for them. So an EHR is what clinicians use day in, day out. They prescribe on it, they document, they track patient outcomes, they bill, they schedule, everything happens in one. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to bring a better system to them overall. So that's where all of the puzzle pieces started to fit together, where we realized that, okay, like the software is really needed for the clinicians, but it's also a vehicle to collect data because the data that goes in with that work that clinicians do day in, day out with the way patients use the software too, um, is very important for research. Like we can figure out what treatments work best mm-hmm. for the individual and we can start to contribute that to how we develop future therapies too. I like your stories. They're all rooted from the psychedelic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a really exciting um, innovation happening right now. And UCSF is actually playing a big part with the Neuroscape Center. Yeah. It's, um, I'm not familiar with that. You know, I mean, from my team's always mentioned about how it, in, interesting that is. I grew up in yes. a different Different era, I guess, when yes. I think about psychedelic. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So one of the things that, you know, I want you to share with us about, you know, your lessons learned, the fact that you were, you know, in investment banking and a private equity and you did an operation. And it's almost like, you planned this all along to start a company. And yeah. I know that's probably most likely it's not, but it, how not is each of that experience yeah. actually lead you to shape who you are and help you uh, become successful in your journey? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it is kind of crazy because in hindsight, I mean, every single step of that journey really shaped me and shaped my ambitions and what I want to do for patients in this field, but it was not at all planned. And I think in a way the haphazardness um, made me stronger. And it was really difficult at the time. Um, I started out in finance because I felt like it was such a great training ground and really gave you concrete skills. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I don't do much finance today. We've got great team members who do that, but it's a really helpful framework, like how to talk to investors, how to think about building a healthy business, what metrics we should be tracking to. Like Those are all skills that are so rooted in the core of finance. And also getting exposure to pharmaceutical companies, like I said, as a 22-year-old, you're getting to speak with, you know, top people from Pfizer and AstraZeneca. And it was just really great to um, learn more about that industry. When I moved into private equity, I think the investing mindset is also very helpful because your job is to assess what's a good company, what's a good industry, what's a good business model, which is helpful as you're starting to um, think about entrepreneurship opportunities, being able to take a step back and look at it from an investor lens um, is important. I think what was interesting was I felt like it was such a bad fit for me. And um, actually that felt to me when I left private equity six months in, um, most people stay in private equity for many, many years, um, or if not their full career. I 
uh, felt like it was the first time I had failed um, mm-hmm. because I felt like I was quitting something early. I felt like I was getting up. Um, and for a while that weighed on me. It's like, oh, wow, like this is the first time I failed. I'm such an overachiever. And I just like ditched this job. I didn't, didn't, I didn't have the guts to stick it out. Um, but in hindsight, I'm really glad I actually took a leap of faith because I felt like operating was a much better fit for my skill set and for my passions. And um, I really credit a lot of the mentors I had at the time and my family and my parents as well for realizing and understanding with me that um, the entrepreneurship or the early startup route was much better for me personally. Um, but yeah, that's something that I think is really important for everyone is like to really know yourself and to trust your gut instinct and if you feel like something is a better fit, whether it's on the investing side or the entrepreneurship side, um, like take the leap of faith. It's not going to be easy. And you might feel like you failed because you might have seemed to have given up on something early. But um, it really paid dividends for me by leaving that job early and took a 70% pay cut to join an early stage startup um, because I knew that was something I was much more passionate about. And I think uh, I when you're passionate about something, your brain somehow open up more. Mm-hmm. and you, you're soaking even more knowledge, I think. But mm-hmm. uh, somebody used to tell me, when you are in a thriving environment, you learn uh, a lot more than if you're not in a thriving environment. I just thought it's a, mm-hmm. it's a funny thing about the brain. So um, mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier, I mean, May is, I mean, now it's the end of May. I know May is a mental health month. And I just yeah. want to touch on a little bit about you growing up here in the Bay Area. I'm just curious because I'm raising a, a son who's, a teenager, 15 and a half. Yep. And the pressure, as you mentioned, uh, as and especially for the Asian population, there's that stigma. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how do you think that is, uh, that can be addressed? And are we addressing it the right way? And what role can you play as an entrepreneur in a company that is trying to address mental health to play? Yeah. Yeah, there's so many complex uh, concepts in the question you asked. Uh, it's really difficult. And I I mentioned before, like be feeling angry about a lot of this. And I think now that I'm reflecting, I feel less angry, but just trying to understand where people are coming from. I think as a kid, I felt angry that my parents would never understand mental health. Or there are so many families where like they didn't talk about mental health. And that resulted in some of the really um, sad events that we talked about. And it's understandable in a way because many people grew up in an era where mental health care was not at all discussed and it was highly stigmatized and it continues to be that way. So I think the first, especially now that it's Mental Health Awareness Month, is that awareness piece Mm -hmm. and trying to live destigmatization from the top. Um, At our company, I think we think a lot about both bottoms up and um, top down culture. And there's so much that we need to support bottoms up. Like every single person, we want to feel empowered to be themselves and to bring them their best selves to work and to talk openly about what issues they might be encountering. But so much of it also comes from the leadership level and from the founder level. And uh, an event that really stuck out to me is we think a lot about how we can support awareness in mental health as a mental health company. So just last week, we brought in um, some licensed clinicians to talk a little bit about mental health in the workplace and how we can support like a community care model where it's not just about self-care. It's about how do we support each other and what are the signs that we see when we need to give each other more support. Um, Prior to that, we've, we've had a lot of events bringing in various clinicians and patients and other voices to talk about mental health care broadly at our company. 
And a moment that uh, stands out to me is we had a leadership team member um, actually talk a little bit about their own mental health care journey and talk about some of the exciting novel treatments that are coming online and their experiences with them. And I just thought that was so brave because in any other company that might be very, very stigmatized to have a prominent member of the team step out and talk about their experiences personally. But this person did that. And it was just really powerful because it made everyone realize like it, it's so hard to know what's going on under the surface for anyone. And it happens to anyone. And just like physical health, we would never judge somebody who got cancer. Like we shouldn't judge people who have mental health conditions too. Um, and you can still, you know, be effective and in the right environment. So that's something that, you know, with Mental Health Awareness Month and with my background, um, having grown up in the Bay Area and seeing that stigma play out in very negative ways is just something that we're, we're really conscious about from a company culture standpoint is you've got to live and breathe it so that we can develop empathy for the problem that we're solving. Yeah. And, and I think you said it really well. And I think it also comes from the top and you being the founder and the leader in the company kind of lead by example. And I think that's great to hear. Um, one of the things I noticed that you, what you, uh, Osmine is a public benefit corporation. I thought that was really interesting. And can you tell us more about and why you've choose that route? Yeah. Yeah. So public benefit corporations are um, for-profit entities. So we still have fiduciary duty, but the difference is that we must include in our company charter at least one like specific public benefit as a statement of purpose. So for us, we've selected um, that our public benefit is to improve patient access to innovative treatments for mental health. And it's interesting because you're right, there aren't that many PDCs. Um, a B Corp is sort of a variation of the PDC that we see at times. But in healthcare, there are not many PDCs, which is surprising given everyone's missions. And uh, we're staunch supporters of the PDC route. Uh, and it, it helps on so many levels. For one, I think from a mission standpoint, most clearly, we are always thinking about that North Star that we stated in our PDC. And it's actually a really helpful guideline for when we have to make tough decisions. Again, we still have fiduciary duty. We're still a for-profit entity. We're still venture-backed. So we have um, our incentives there. But we also have the patient access to innovative treatments arm that we think about a lot. So this actually came up last week where we had um, a very literal example of where being a PDC allowed us to make the right choice, in my opinion. Um, we have a patient community that we run that's free of charge for patients experiencing tre treatment-resistant mental health conditions. Um, the patients can log on to the community and chat with each other and find support. And it's just something that actually my co-founder and I spun up in the height of COVID because we were like, we got to do something. Let's just throw this patient community out there and see what happens. And it just ended up picking up steam um, without really anything on our end uh, and really spoke to the need of patients wanting to find support with each other. Uh, but anyway, the patient community went down last week for some bug that we didn't didn't see. And we literally were like, oh gosh, should we divert resources from our core product development to fix our patient community, um, even though it's we're not charging for it and it's not part of our core product right now, at least. And I think in any other situation, um, if you were totally for profit, you would your calculus would be, nope, we gotta we have to stay the course. Like this is not a revenue generating product. So sorry, like we're not gonna fix it and all these patients are not gonna get get the support that they need. But because we're a PBC, I could actually tell our engineering leaders and tell our whole team, hey, we're a PBC. One of our missions is to improve patient access to innovative treatments. So I would rather we divert resources. It's going to take a day. Um, let's fix the community and get these patients back the support that they found in each other. 
So I thought that it was just a very helpful literal framework for how we can make decision, tough decisions where for-profit is not always the right answer. And um, we had the ability to, to make that tough decision. So that's why I think that every healthcare company should be a PBC. And I know my co-founder feels very strongly about that too. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm you know, like you said, I, th- I feel like uh, the PBC is uh, not common. So that's why I think, you know, it caught my eyes when oh, that that's what you guys do. And it's also a heartwarming for me to know like the young leader maybe think about, you know, doing company, but more thinking with the community in mind. I think that's really make me feel good uh, to be in this innovative uh, world that you are in. Um, Mm -hmm. One last question. Uh, I'm sure now with your new new funding, you have to build your team and things are moving faster and your investor probably expect you to move faster as well. Uh, What's the next step and what is the goal that you have uh, that that you you want to achieve? Yeah, oh, so much. <laughs> There's so much to do. Um, so yeah, as mentioned, we're really fortunate. We raised forty million dollars in Series B funding uh, led by DFJ Growth and with participation participation from our existing investors. So a uh, big focus on that is going to be to continue to build out the EHR and really just make it an amazing product for psychiatrists and other mental health clinicians to use. Um, it's a compl- complicated product. EHRs do so much in such a small like bundle of a package, and we really want to make it a seamless user experience. Um, we also have a patient-facing component in our EHR. We have a patient app that patients use to log their outcomes and to build a better therapeutic alliance with their clinician. And that's something that we want to develop more resourcing towards as well. So that's the main focus on um, with our funding. On top of that, like we are still growing our team. So we're hiring across the board um, in engineering and some go-to-market team uh, members and roles as well. I think it's interesting now with the market environments of how do we think about continuing to grow sustainably. And I know that's on a lot of startups' minds right now. So um, we're continuing to grow and to hire, but to just be very thoughtful and really ruthless about how we prioritize. Like how do we think about what are the best ways to use our funding for the next few years? How do we invest in projects that have near-term ROI? Um, but how, how do we also keep in mind that you know we are a PBC and we've got longer-term initiatives too? That's a constant balance that I think every entrepreneur needs to figure out, especially right now with this environment. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, I hope the, this too will pass. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but until it happens, it's hard to predict when that's going to happen. Um, so as any company, when you grow, holding on to a certain culture probably is uh, can be challenging. And yeah. what are the things, you know, what are the culture that you want to have in your team and that you want to keep? Yeah. Yeah, it is a really good question. And I think it's especially made more difficult with um, remote first work and how do we really integrate the full team. Um, so something that we think about a lot, a lot of what we discussed around bringing together our mission and ensuring that we're bringing in patient and provider and other industry voices is something that we do quite a bit. So we have like regular programming where we bring um, special talks in. We actually are about to have a big company on site in a couple of weeks. And we have one of our scientific advisory board members coming in. He's a researcher at Stanford focused on um, ketamine and other rapid acting antidepressants. And he's giving a full talk on all of that. 
Um, and I think that's really exciting for even non-clinical members to understand where the field is headed. Um, but on top of that, I think a lot of it is just, um, you know, our work is very serious and sometimes that, that magnitude is very heavy on people. So how do we balance like lightness with seriousness? So some of that is like taking our work very seriously, but not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, we like to have fun and that culture sort of permeates throughout the company. We've got some really fun Slack activity all the time. There's like funny messages going out at all hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, when we are together in person, we have a remote first culture. So we do have an office in San Francisco, like I mentioned, but no one's required to go in the office. We do bring together uh, everyone uh, a couple times a year. And so when that happens, it's, you know, take our work seriously, but don't take ourselves too seriously. Like, let's have fun. Let's bring together our clinician and patient voices, but also just spend some quality and intentional time together. Um, mm-hmm. So I think going forward, as we continue to scale, that just becomes more and more important being really intentional with every touch point we have with the team um, and continuing to put our mission first, first, first and foremost. Yeah. So last question, I promise. This is a fun question. Um, cool. Well, maybe two. <laughs> what mm-hmm. are the things that we don't know about you that is fun? Because you uh, you mm-hmm. mentioned that you know, don't take yourself seriously. That's something that we cannot tell <laughs> from your LinkedIn. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. And I reserve my second question later. <laughs> Oh, okay. Wow. Ooh, what's something that's not known about me? That's fun. Um, I, I, yeah, I definitely am such a big fan of everything we've talked about today. And in the spirit of supporting mental health, I think a lot of people don't know that I'm pretty rigorous about my mental health in a few different ways. I'm actually very anti-social media. And and if anyone wants to talk to me about that, I can just go on a tirade about (laughs) how I feel about social media. Um, And so it's, it's funny because you talked a little bit about like what it's like being an entrepreneur. And that's something I personally struggle with is how much of a public persona to have. And a lot of entrepreneurs are so great at that and really have built a brand for themselves. And it's something that I'm still coming to terms with because I am so anti-social media and I think it's not good for my mental health. Um, the second piece is, is that like I love the outdoors and um, a lot of my team members do too. So we've had some fun running meetings with some team members, um, but that's definitely a way that I decompress and not take myself too seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. So I guess I would not mm-hmm. be seeing you much uh, tweeting or uh, posting anything in Instagram. <laughs> Not not yet. Nope. <laughs> I'm going to resist. Yeah. My, my last question. So when things are tough, what are the things that you tell your, yourself to keep going? Good question. Two, two trains of thought. The first, again, really harping back on what we discussed around um, bringing in our patient and clinician voices. There is a talk that we have heard from a patient actually pretty early on in Oz9, though she came back a year later to, to give a talk again. Um, and she's a patient who has struggled with treatment-resistant re- depression for decades. She's tried 20 plus different types of treatments, both traditional and more innovative and interventional. Um, And it was just probably one of the most moving things I've ever heard. She went from, you know, having such severe depression that she couldn't get out of bed. She couldn't see family and friends um, to being able to like really function and do well. And now she holds a leadership position at a great mental health company that we know. And it was just just such an inspiring talk. And sometimes when I'm down, I'll think about her or I'll think about some of the other patients that we've spoken with and just like how strong they are. And that I, if they can be that strong, like if I can just have 1% of that strength, I can get through this difficult moment. 
So that's one that I think about. The second is just in this again, spirit of not taking ourselves too seriously, just knowing that like we're trying really hard to to do our best work and we've already made such an impact. At Osmine, we've served 40,000 patients and over 600 clinicians so far. So if the world were to stop at this very moment, I would still be so proud of what our team has done um, and what we hopefully will continue to do. But just knowing that like to take a step back, don't be so hard on yourself and recognize the hard work and the great work that's been done so far. That's great. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story and thanks for sharing your insight. Thanks so much, Christine. This is fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.